Hello and welcome to K-Talks. Before we start with today's episode, a big thank you for listening to this podcast and for sharing your feedback. This is much, much appreciated. And with this feedback in mind, we are making a small change to the format. So what is this change? It is the language. Uh, because for our international listeners, it has been somewhat confusing to have an episode described in English, only to learn the conversation was in Serbian. And so to address this going forward, this channel will only feature episodes and show notes in English. The talks in Serbian, Croatian and other languages across the region will move to our new channel, KTalks Local, which will be optimized for our listeners in Southeast Europe. It will only take one click to subscribe to the second channel and we will be sharing that link with the next episode. We have also refreshed the visual identity of the two channels to make it more convenient for our listeners. Meanwhile, we have been recording new episodes and expect to feature at least one every week. Once again, thank you. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Julien Custori. Julien is the founder and managing partner at Phil Rouge Capital one of the first local VCs active in the region of Southeast Europe. Julian has a wealth of experience as a CEO in global corporations, living and working in dozens of countries worldwide, as one of the founders of a successful startup financed by Y Combinator, as a founder of ABC Accelerator in Slovenia, and most recently as a founder and managing partner of Phil Rouge Capital. We talk about his early career, his jump into entrepreneurs, and his investment style. I hope you enjoy. Julian, uh, welcome to Kate Talks, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. Thanks for uh, having me at uh, the famous Kate Talks. It's my pleasure. Uh, Julian, first of all, I would like uh, to get uh, how did you start your career and uh, how did your career progress from uh, where you started it towards uh, running this uh, very successful uh, fund in, in our region? Uh, you're taking me a couple of years back now, um, mm -hmm. but that's a, that's a very nice memory, so I can, I can easily talk about it. Um, I, uh, I was not originally from Paris. I mean, I used to be French a long time ago, but I... I was from the south of France, and uh, as some of us have to do it, we came to Paris to finish our studies, uh, which is what I did. So I graduated as an engineer on the 14th of June, 1995. And on the 15th of June, I was in a plane, Paris, Singapore, Jakarta, to work as an engineer in Jakarta, uh, where I was um, in charge of building up a mobile network, you know, you know, disks crazy thing called mobile phones, which uh, kind of changed our life. Some say for, some say for the worse, some say for the better. Uh, but I was lucky in my life to be uh, one of the pioneers um, in, in the mobile world. Um, I, I started my career at Alcatel, who was uh, an absolute key contributor to the norm, the standard itself, the GSM standard. Uh, and I was um, then I started my career as an engineer and I kind of climbed the ladder and um, through the ranks of uh, becoming CEO of mobile operations throughout the world. 
um, and uh, uh, specialized somehow in the emerging world, had some very successful um, operations in Haiti, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, some crazy places like this, Bolivia. Uh, and, um, and then decided that uh, I wanted to sleep without my bodyguards and take warm showers every morning. <laughs> So I kind of decided to uh, to come home, and, and home is not that far away. It's, uh, it's Ljubljana, because I made the same mistake as Donald Trump did. I married a Slovene, so you see, <laughs> Donald and I are uh, are the fools in the story. Well, yeah, th- 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 that was a, a lovely story. And But then what was it that, that actually uh, made you change your career from what was, uh, you know, in many ways, a, a straightforward corporate ladder into something that is, uh, you know, so so much more adventurous, and uh, you know, uh, it involved so much risk taking and uh, quite uh, quite a sort of may, maybe not different uh, personal qualities and skills, but definitely a, a different type of risk appetite, a different perception of risk. Yeah, 10 years ago, uh, I turned 40 and uh, I mean, a bit less than 40, but uh, and um, a group of, of young guys came to me and they were looking for some money to to start a software project. And I really liked the, the project, but more importantly, I really liked those guys. And um, it was really interesting how those guys would listen to to the stuff I had to say. And I I don't particularly think highly of myself and never thought I could I could help and give back um, that way. And um, this company started doing very well. And then um, we applied. So I invested and I kind of grew a, a position. I was like almost a full time in this company and without really thinking about it. And we applied to Y Combinator, which uh, is the uh, the mecca for Accelerator, and we got accepted into Y Combinator. Uh, and those guys came to see me and they said, look, you know, we are going to California and we are not going there without you. You're part of the team. I said, well, guys, you know, I have, a, I have a wife and daughter and, you know, maybe you want to talk to me and give me a bit of time to think. And uh, that's how it all started. So I went to California. I did the uh, the startup dream. I mean, I met the A list of of people there. I mean, I used to to jog in. in I mean, we were living two blocks away from uh, Steve Jobs, and you know, bumped into him a um, couple of times while jogging in the evening. I mean, met Al Gore, Zuckerberg, uh, Brian Chesky, and uh, I can't name them all. And I developed a taste for that. Uh, and I thought that, you know, at, at my age, and if I still wanted to be an entrepreneur, uh, a good way to combine both was to start investing because I could still keep somehow my entrepreneur mind at ease by, by retaining some kind of control, not, not in a bad way, but some possibility to contribute to a company without having to manage the day-to-day of it. And I really found my way there. Um, you know, I had run very, very heavy operations in the telecom world. I mean, very dangerous ones. I mean, in Haiti, it was, um, uh, I was under heavy security. I was the number one on the kidnappers list. And we had tons of, uh, we had employees kidnapped and, and a lot of pressure and a very big business to run. And I just thought, 
maybe you know I'm coming to a point where it's it's a good way to put money and and give to entrepreneurs, and they seem to like what I tell them, and that's how uh, I came to do that. Sorry, I've been a bit long, but I think. No, 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 please, please feel free to, to give long answers. I, I would really like to dive deep into each of these topics. But, you know, wh when I asked you about, uh, you know, risk taking when it comes to entrepreneurial uh, stuff, I was uh, actually unaware of this uh, uh, massive security detail and, and other risks that you were exposed to. So maybe that sort of exposure was... Uh, in some ways similar uh, or, or at least numbed you down uh, for this sort of risk? Because, you know, if your life is threatened or if uh, you are at risk of being kidnapped, you know, what is uh, losing some money compared to that in, in many ways? Yeah, that is true. And, and you know, uh, something was very interesting in the US. The relationship to failure, especially when it's about losing money, is, is very different. Uh, in the U.S. than it is in Europe. Uh, in Europe, in some countries, if you go bankrupt, like in France, you're you're not authorized to run a company for five years. It's not, you know. Um, in the U.S., actually, nobody looks at you know why you fail or how you fail. Everybody looks at how you recovered and what's the next step for you. Um, so I, it kind of gave me the taste for risk and and you know money is is important but i mean losing money is something you can always recover from uh and i as i as i told you i, I got really excited about taking a bit of risk with with my own money and and involve myself um to groom some very good entrepreneurs which were pretty happy to to listen and, and take advices from what i had to tell them um let me ask you, what was the experience like with uh, getting the funds from Y Combinator? How was, uh, you know, they are, you know, really famous for having a very, very small percentage of all applicants get actually getting, getting funding. Yeah, I mean, this was a life-changing experience. Um, I met there some of the, uh, to date, probably the, the most amazing brain I ever uh, was able to meet. Um, there are a couple of guys that started Y Combinator. Uh, one of them is called Paul Graham. He's actually the iconic founder of, of Y Combinator, and he was our main mentor. And I, I could, I couldn't wait to go on office hours once a week with with Paul Graham. I mean, I was about to be forty years old, and I was learning in forty minutes office hours with this guy more than I had learned in twenty years of career. Uh, so I, I absolutely loved everything about it. Um, there are a few things I didn't like about the Silicon Valley, frankly. Um, you know, um, they, they are like in every place, I would say, you have upsides and, and, and shortcomings. Uh, but I mean, overall, uh, it was a tremendous experience. Um, we raised a lot of money. Most of it, we raised it in Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't ask me why we we got you know our product got very interesting for Japanese investors, and we in in two weeks we find ourselves raising money in Tokyo. I mean, here I am with the other co-founder in a taxi in Ropongi going to Shibuya for an investors meeting mm -hmm. to raise one million euro. 
Um, so I, I loved everything about it. I loved the dynamic of it. I love to be in, in contact with young, younger entrepreneurs um, that see the world and see life very differently already from who I was. And I'm, you know, you can always argue that when you're 40, you're not that old. Uh, but, you know, I was spending, I mean, I was, I was roommate with 25 years old guys. I mean, I was sharing a room with them. I mean, and in the Silicon Valley, they used to call me, oh, he's the, he's the old guy from that team. <laughs> so um, I, I loved every bit of it. Um, and I think I also learned a lot, frankly. And it's always nice at, at a certain point in your career when you think you've, you've gone around, been there, done that, to be intellectually challenged. Um, at that time, you said when you saw those guys, you were really impressed with, uh, with the technology, but also impressed with them uh, as a team. And, uh, you know, how has that perception changed or evolved over time? Uh, what is it that you now look in, in young entrepreneurs uh, coming to you for, for funding? Um, I, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I fell in love with those guys is probably because, um, I mean, they had something which I really liked is that they had no fear, you know, and I, and I love this, you know, I, and, you know, I'm, my, my motto in life mm -hmm. is go big or go home, you know, so whatever you, you attempt, whatever you try to do, try to, too good to go the whole way. Don't do things halfway. Just go for it, deep into it. I really like that with those guys. Interestingly enough, uh, we've all had different paths, uh, but we, we always meet twice a year. Uh, we, we kept very, very tight together and um, in, in touch, very much in touch. So there's a very, very strong friendship that emerged out of this this period and what I look for, I mean, I mean, relentless, you know, they have to be relentless. They have to be gutsy and, you know, um, they shouldn't listen uh, when they are being told that it's not going to work because beside the market, nobody is more qualified to tell you it's not going to work. Mm. Right. But, uh, you know, at, at the time, I would assume that, you know, part of the, the allure was the, the fact that they sort of pressed some of your buttons, you know, they, they were, I would assume, as uh, risk-taking as you were, they wanted to go big, they were relentless, and, you know, you were uh, sort of the, the, the same team. But is, you know, when, when somebody today comes to you, and, uh, you know, maybe they're not such a strong team, but they have a very solid technology or maybe they, they are, um, you know, not, not so good technology, but they're entering a market that, that is becoming, uh, you know, uh, th that has a lot of potential for disruption or for, you know, go going forward. So when normally when you speak with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, partners at, at VC funds, they often tell you that, you know, it is about the team, it is about uh, the technology, it is about the market. And, and most of them often point to uh, the team as being the most important uh, uh, part of the, the equation. Is, the same, is it the same for you? Or, and, and, 
you know, can you maybe share some of the experiences of, of other teams that, that you work with? Sure, without a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, I can, I can share an experience which, which uh, dates before my, my tech days, simply when I was in telecom. I remember very well um, at Alcatel, for example, we had a product which had no equivalent uh, in 1995. Uh, it was pretty much the only really mature GSM product on the market. Uh, and, I, and I can talk from experience because after my job at Alcatel, I went to work for an operator which was using Nortel, mm -hmm. so a competitor. And I remember that two years after, uh, some features that we had two years, two years before in Alcatel were just coming to, to Nortel. And that tells you uh, uh, some, something very simple. It's not because you have the best technology that you're going to win. And Alcatel is, is a sad but a, a living example of that. Uh, and, and I think you know, this is very true in the early stage world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how, many, you know, how many times, uh, I mean, I was able to, to give, I was given an opportunity to invest into a, a copycat of what is now Snapchat. Mm -hmm. Three years before Snapchat. Why this didn't go through? I don't know, but probably Ivan Spiegel was a better CEO, mm. you know, to make it happen. You know, so so I think I'm absolutely no different than any any other VCs. Uh, the team is 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 an absolute must, and I am I'm very often saying, you know, a a, a, a crappy idea might turn into gold with a good team. Mm -hmm. A great idea is for sure going to turn into crap with a shitty team. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's a yeah. It's a it's a very very good analogy. Um, and if we further focus down on the team and the type of qualities that, that a team needs, uh, quite often it would be the case that uh, the team is solid, that they are uh, you know, good people, that they uh, work well together, but then they still may be lacking some skills uh, that they need to uh, be better at what they do, to be more focused, to... Uh, understand the market better and sometimes it is uh, about the technical skills but uh, quite often it is also about these soft skills uh, that that they need in order to you know grow personally for them to be better at uh, at what they do and you know normally uh, you would have mentors uh, helping startups uh, primarily in the technical aspects or maybe on uh, you know how to go to market but in many ways, it seems that, you know, this soft skills part, the kind of psychological maybe uh, coaching that some of these founders need is lacking uh, when it comes to, to uh, VC backing. Is it any different with you? And, and do you see actually this as a problem at all? So I, I have a very, very strong vision of the, of the VC world. Uh, for me, you cannot be a VC, or if you want to add an adjective, you cannot be a good VC if you haven't been an entrepreneur before. Okay, so uh, the model of you know the London guys fresh out of the London business school uh, going into VC uh, and deciding on on investment, 
uh, for me is extremely limited. Uh, the check and the, the moment of writing a check uh, and, and sending the money via, via wire transfer lasts about one second. Your lifespan as an investor of the company generally in an average lasts about eight to 10 years. Mm. Okay, so you, you can, but by just looking at the time scale, mm. you can easily understand that money is actually a very, very, very small part of what an, an investor can bring to the company. Okay, uh, one of the things we seem to be praised for at, at Fil Rouge, and um, you shouldn't quote me here, I'm just repeating what people say about us in, in official statement, uh, is that, you know, we do bring more than money. Um, and that ranges from some crazy stuff. I mean, a, a couple of months ago, I got a phone call at 11 in the evening from a founder who had a problem with his girlfriend. He said, you know, how did you manage with the time pressure when you were mm -hmm. in the heat of running an operation? How did you do this? How did you do that? Now a kid is coming. What do you suggest me? You know, so this is, you know, you know, you, you range from this is psychological. Mm -hmm. And another founder called me three weeks later and told me, listen, I'm, I'm a bit out of my depths on the commercial side. I want to hire a COO. Can you, can you help? And I say, sure. I say, what would you do? I say, well, I can send you a couple of people I know. I can introduce you to a couple of headhunters, if that's the, the route you want to take. And if you want, I can interview the one you will have selected. And I'll give you my honest opinion. And you do whatever you want with it. But I can, I can do that for you. And we came to hiring a CEO. And that was you know, quite some time ago. And I'm, I had a board meeting with this uh, founder uh, about a month ago. And I said, listen, uh, you helped me to, to hire this girl. And that's the best thing we've done, you know, in the company um, in terms of hire. So you see, it's, it, it has a very broad range. Uh, another founder will call, call and say, listen, we are out of money. You know, can you help? Mm. You know, I said, okay, you know, let's talk. What do you need? Why are you coming there? You know, how much do you need? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as I told you, um, writing the check is is really the, the you know the the easiest investor can do, and I and I do believe that investors should bring much more than money. At least that's the motto we have, and that's the motto we live by at Fear of Capital. Hmm. Right. Um... Maybe we should spend some time talking about uh, Phil Rouge Capital. Um, you know, how do you see the market uh, of Slovenia in terms of everything that we've spoken so far? I, I really like your comparison between the, uh, you know, French director bankrupting a company and, and the US and uh, fully agree that there is a lot of stigma around going bankrupt and, and losing money uh, all across Europe. But from from my perspective, at least, it seems that the, the problem, the kind of the level of how people risk averse are, uh, that this problem is even uh, further magnified in this, uh, in, in this region. So former Yugoslavia or whatever we, we, we like to call it. Um, how do you see that? And, and uh, can you draw any comparisons between uh, people here and people maybe uh, in other places in Europe in terms of how risk uh, averse they are? Yeah, I mean, look, the, I'd say 
I think entrepreneurs are, I mean, talent is distributed equally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I just got off the phone with, with an amazing investor who invested in Daniel X, Spotify. Mm-hmm. When, when Spotify was worth 2 million euros, I think. I, I can't, I mean, uh, it is now, I think, a few hundred billions or a bit less than 100. I, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I had a great chat with this guy. He's a fantastic guy. He's a Swede, Swedish guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, Stefan, do you know that our region is 25 million? He said, Jesus, it's the same as our part of the world. Mm-hmm. You know? I said, well, you know, we could find the next Daniel Eck here. Mm-hmm. He is somewhere. He's between Belgrade, Nish, Novi Sad, Zagreb, Osijek, uh, uh, Ljubljana, and maybe Maribor. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that talent is here, and and the education system, um, the mentality of people is is phenomenal here. The biggest issue is is the lack of capital. I mean, put it simple. You know, um, there is. Uh, no or very little ecosystem in the region active in the region you have a few funds coming from austria the czech republic and bulgaria looking uh, at the region but uh, you only have two funds really active uh, in the region one is located in belgrade by the way with a fant- led by a phenomenal guy which um, i really like uh, as event as ventures uh, unfortunately, S Ventures is, is out of his investment period, so they have no money. I mean, they've, they've finished their investment, uh, and it's us at the moment. And, and if you have to measure an ecosystem, uh, a very important way to measure it is by the amount of fund this ecosystem has available to finance young entrepreneurs. And that is where you know, uh, everything is lacking in the region. So fair to say that in Slovenia, it's a little bit more advanced. Uh, there, there has been a fund before active in Slovenia. Uh, there is a pretty active business angel association and, and uh, a very good um, Slovene state entrepreneurial fund. Uh, and all this uh, made that ecosystem probably the leader uh, at the time, uh, where I believe probably now the the leading ecosystem, if you ask me, would probably be Croatia. Um, Habor is extremely active. Uh, our, we are based in Zagreb, and we are, you know, uh, the lead investor. We've made seventy-two investment in in a year, and all these based in Zagreb. So I would say that, you know, uh, Slovenia was probably a bit ahead, and I think that Croatia is is catching up, maybe, um, maybe at, you know, overtaking it. Um, then, of course, uh, you know, Belgrade is there, but um, still uh, not as developed as it should be. Uh, and, you know, this takes uh, political vision and, and entrepreneurial vision for the people that have the means to actually put something together. Mm. Um, maybe uh, just to dig a little bit deeper into this, the story of Slovenia. You know, at one point there is no funding, and then uh, in in the second point of time there is, and uh, there are funds, there are angel investors investing, there are state funds, but obviously one of them has to be the um, you know the, the the first one, the sort of the first mover into the market, the, the first one seeing the opportunity and and believing uh, in it. Is it 
the money coming ma mainly from the angels, mainly from, from funds or mainly from the state that is actually the first mover uh, in your experience? Or what, what was it like in, in Slovenia at the time? Okay, well, frankly, it doesn't matter uh, where the money comes from to create the new Spotify in the region. We have a say in France, um, l'argent n'a pas d'odeur. Uh, l'argent n'a pas d'odeur, meaning um, money doesn't smell. I really like that um, because, you know, at the end of the day, what entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs need is, is money to, to grow and develop their idea. And, and, and if it's angel money, VC money or public money, it doesn't matter as long as it starts, it ignites something that, you know, everybody will benefit in the end. Um, so I would say uh, what's important is to create an ecosystem with the three acting together jointly, maybe not always at the same time. It doesn't really matter. But uh, and I think uh, that um, this is uh, there are a few countries where this is working nicely. Probably Slovenia is a place where it is uh, working, uh, working well. They have a very efficient um, Slovene state fund that is very active. And that's something, um, you know, we should, uh, you know, other countries should probably inspire themselves from. Mm. Uh, what is actually Phil Rouge, uh, how is Phil Rouge structured in, in Croatia? And um, I understand that it is actually working as an operator of public funds, of uh, European funds. And congratulations for actually winning that uh, that uh, mandate. But uh, how how is it operating? If you can explain in in uh, some detail, and how is it different from the setup that you have in Slovenia? I mean, the the operation in in Croatia is is uh, extremely uh, plain vanilla structure. Um, there is a, what we call limited partner. Uh, limited partner structure, so investors. Amongst those investors, we have the European Investment Fund. Uh, we have um, some banks in Austria. We have some pension funds. We have some family offices. And we have a general partner structure. Uh, I mean, the person you're talking to at the moment is one of the three uh, people composing the general partner partnership. Uh, and we are structured, um, you know, um, very, very, uh, very, very structured. I mean, our bylaws, to give you an idea, are uh, uh, 180 pages. Um, we are a semi-regulated um, entity. Um, and it's all uh, very, you know, um, transparent. And we administer money. So, so what you said is, is partly true. Uh, it is fair to say that we 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 are kind of an operator of public fund, but we are actually um, uh, about thirty or thirty five percent of our total funding <clears throat> comes from non public entities. Actually, so it is true. Uh, EIF has been a very strong anchor to to our fundraising strategy and and, and a very a big one and a, a strong one and a good one. Uh, but we were able to complement that by a lot of um, private money, although <clears throat> it's, uh, you, you could argue that pension funds is, is not exactly private money. But I mean, I would say non-governmental non -gov money, uh, to use a more proper term. So we are very classic, um, 
uh, LPGP structure like you have ten thousands of those um, everywhere in the world. Uh, but the, the actually the the idea that I was hinting at with my previous in this question is for an ecosystem that is uh, a little bit uh, falling behind in terms of uh, where Europe is and where uh, Slovenia and Croatia are right now. The, the, the first mover question was actually there to kind of uh, try to explore what is the, the best way that a country can take uh, or should take in terms of uh, trying to uh, find the money and trying trying to strengthen up uh, or or put the spark into the into the ecosystem, and uh, this is a little bit anecdotal. But uh, you know, when when I'm speaking to many uh, investors, regardless of uh, what their structure is uh, in, in in Serbia, for example, they tend to tell me that uh, you know many of them have made mistakes and many still are making mistakes by, for example, diluting the the founder too much or by trying to control the company too much and in many aspects it is um, it is a symptom of a relatively uh, young ecosystem it is a symptom of uh, something that is not mature but at the same time I think it shows that there is a, a severe lack of funding because were there uh, more funds, uh, more money being invested in this ecosystem, there would have been some sort of competition between uh, different investors. There would be would have been, uh, you know, better practices and good practices, and and finally best practices that everybody can learn from. And uh, you know, the the uh, actually the all of this is, is trying uh, is coming from. Uh, an idea of, you know, if we want to build, if we want to help build uh, a, a stronger ecosystem, there needs to be some sort of uh, first mover, there needs to be some sort of uh, first step. And there, you know, we, we also should learn from experiences from other more mature uh, uh, markets. So, uh, you know, from this context, maybe I've now given you a little bit more context to, to the question. Uh, how how do you think it is different? And And uh, of course, I, I should also add that when it comes to state money, there are also sort of uh, you know shortcomings, especially in the early stages where where this money is coming, because it is often burdened by uh, different regulations like uh, public procurement, like making sure that everything is accounted for in a system which is actually functioning for a country and maybe even for a for a company but not for something that, that, that is more venture-like. You know, and, and from this perspective, how do you see the, the difference between uh, managing or, or investing or directing money that is more state-owned compared to private-owned? Do you see a difference at, at all? I mean, for us, we, we I mean, in, in the bucket of, of the 45 million we are managing, we never think that part of this money is public, part of this money is private, or we never think that these gentlemen invested that. We, we see it as a, as a bucket and we want the best for, for every investment we make because you know, our goal is to return some you know, more money than what they've invested. We also see that as, a part of, as an essential part of building the ecosystem. If we are successful, uh, we are likely to raise another fund and re reinvest a lot of money into the ecosystem and start this virtuous circle. Mm -hmm. uh, what you said about about the ecosystem, um, 
the age of the ecosystem is very interesting. Um, obviously, the, the the more mature the ecosystem, um, probably um, uh, I should say, uh, you, you more money is into the the game, and and maybe terms are more favorable to entrepreneurs, but. I never, I never really oppose entrepreneurs and investors. I mean, I, um, I mean, I, I never really negotiate on valuation. Uh, it's it has to be a, a fit, you know. And 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 some founders are coming with some crazy numbers, and you know, we we try to explain to them that you know th this number doesn't make sense and. Um, this is our rationale, and some of them understand it, some of them don't understand it, and some of them don't raise, or some of them come back to us and raise, and and this is part of of of, of the game. Uh, and I think what is fair to say also in 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 the highly competitive ecosystem, and I know the Silicon Valley very well, um, you sometimes have you know fifty investors fighting for one deal. And the result of that is, you know, of course, in probably uh, entrepreneurs can can get much better terms. But actually, it's very short-sighted because it's better terms um, for them in the sense that they, they probably uh, get less dilution. But it's very bad terms for the investors, which means in the end, they're going to get bad return. If they get bad return, they are not going to find investors. If they don't find investors, they are not going to exist you know what I mean? So yeah. I think like, like in every, uh, it has to be a fine balance. Uh, and I'm not saying that some investors are not abusing and some founders are not abusing uh, at some point in time. But I think that in 90% of the cases, uh, I mean, I, I'm happy to sign the deal I've uh, engineered and that it was accepted uh, by the, the founder and vice versa. And then you move on, but um, high high dilution at the beginning is is an issue. You're you're mentioned you mentioned it. You're spot on, and that's clearly a, a nature of, of a, an infant an ecosystem that is still is in its infancy, uh, and it's a problem later. But I mean, you can also you have solutions. Uh, when this has happened, uh, to correct it by creating uh, employee stock option pool and a few few things like that. I mean, I'm talking about it because we we had the issue a couple of times where we thought the the founder had been too diluted, and we would force the creation of a 10% option pool, uh, and 50% of that pool would go back to the founder, and then we would invest only under that condition. So. You have solutions for that. Sorry, it's a bit technical, but um, I mean, you're you're spot on. Um, clearly, uh, valuation is always a, a supply and demand. And in terms of valuation, if you uh, if you would like to go deeper, I would really like to explore your mentioning, and and this is something that we really hear very often that um, negotiation about valuation is really in many ways pointless especially if the if the figures are completely uh, in contrast uh, to one another uh, and you know if, if you don't mind just uh, uh, sharing some of the magic 
Uh, how how do you come to valuation? And maybe uh, it would be also worthwhile exploring how much of it is, uh, you know, solely based on on numbers, and how much of it is uh, made on a sort of a gut feeling and understanding how the market uh, operates, uh, at least within the market that, that the startup is in. And this is, you know particularly interesting question for me, especially when, you know, pre-seed and seed uh, uh, financing is made. Sure. I mean, you, you we've, we've internally defined a couple of ranges, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you have the man with the plan, <laughs> you have uh, the team uh, with a product, you have the team with a product and some beta users, you have a team with a product with paying users, you have a team, a product, a monthly recurring revenue that is still losing money. You have a team, a product with monthly recurring revenue that is making money. Uh, and that is, you know, essentially five big ranges we try to, to, to stay within so that there is consistency to our approach. Uh, of course, there's always room for exceptions, but they have to be motivated by uh, either an extraordinary uh, user base, for example, that has metrics uh, of stickiness, which are blowing your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying something stupid, but uh, um, one team comes with an app and, uh, okay, they only have 1,000 beta users, but 90% of them are spending three hours per day on the app. A, a TikTok kind of metrics, you know what I mean? And, of course, that, that uh, encourages a, a, a bit of a lift on the, uh, on the valuation. Uh, but, you know, generally we try to stay consistent uh, within our range uh and that's how we that's what you call our magics <laughs> yeah. yeah i really like that on your website it's it's really transparent it allows for different uh you know scenarios for everyone to uh to choose from yes. uh and maybe if if you don't mind me asking uh for those uh you know men with a plan situations or you know team with a product situations where there is no uh, sort of available metric to have uh, a user to understand, uh, you know, you, you, you can maybe uh, predict within some reasonable range the cost of uh, developing uh, the product and then layer on top of that, the you know, going to market with it. Uh, I would assume that that would be a, a particularly difficult one to measure uh, compared to the one even yes. when they're saying that that users are spending three hours, I think uh, you know a week, uh, too long uh, due diligence would would help you sort sort that out. But with these who are you know genuinely, as you say, relentless and focused, and maybe well versed in the technicalities of the product that they're uh, that they are selling, compared to those that maybe aren't, but you see the uh, potential in in the idea. I would assume that the answer is a range of balance that maybe you can share some some. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, it's very simple. Um, this is uh, this is a set in stone strategy. Uh, if we like the team and we think the idea could fly, um, we tell them, okay, come. Uh, we give you ten thousand euro. Uh, at 100,000 valuation, so we we take 10% of the company. Uh, you're going to define some KPIs 
you know, what can you achieve with this 10,000? 10, because our idea is to take you in our accelerator for 50,000 euros. Now, what we do is um, uh, a standard investment in our accelerator is 50,000 euros for 10%, which values the company at 500,000. So what we do here is to go back to the very good point you made on not taking too much equity at the beginning. Uh, when we have a company that does what we call the startup school and the accelerator, uh, if we look at the two programs separately, our holding would be 20%, okay? 10% at the accelerator, uh, the, the startup school stage in 10% at the accelerator. And we change that. So for companies, and it happened already a few times, that are actually part of our startup school to whom we gave 10,000 euro and that were good enough to follow, to get a follow-on investment in our accelerator, we're only taking a, a total sum of 16%. So at the accelerator stage, we give 50,000, but we only take 6% additional for that. So we try to to find the right balance between taking not taking too much equity at the, the very beginning. And, and it's it's difficult because, you know, um, this is, you know, equity is how we also make our returns, but we, we try to be really cognizant of the fact that this founder is going to have another two rounds before reaching some kind of maturity and, and he should still have majority after those three rounds, including ours. So that was a very concrete example. I hope. Yes, this was uh, uh, this was uh, this was perfect, and and thank you so much. Uh, maybe for the for the last uh, questions for for this interview, uh, uh, can you maybe give your view on the future of uh, of this region? And again, maybe I should give some additional perspective to the question. Uh, in preparation for the call, I, I tried to. Um, give you a, a sort of a, my view on this and in, in many aspects, you know, many entrepreneurs, when you speak to them, they, they want to have a global product, they want to have a global success and they want to end up in Silicon Valley. I think uh, a vast majority of them. In many cases, the product that they are building is not globally scalable. Um, sometimes it is, obviously, sometimes it isn't. And in, 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 you know, a fair chunk of those cases is something that can be scaled nationally, uh, but not, not globally. And because this region is pretty much, uh, you know, connected and uh, there are historical reasons for it, you know, education system is fairly similar still across uh, all of the countries. The language is uh, uh, very similar the culture is similar and the people know each other and, uh, you know, go from one place to another quite, quite often. And in many cases, you know, those products that, that can be scaled uh, nationally are maybe not worth investing in uh, at early stages. Uh, so where do you see an opportunity for, you know, regional cooperation, for regional uh, scaling and for sort of cross-border potential between the Serbian uh, Croatian and, and Slovenian markets in particular, which you identified as the most developed one. Okay, I mean, I mean, one thing, I mean, I, I don't want to become too political because I don't think that's a, that's a good idea. But uh, one thing, for example, uh, I mean, if you look, talk about, you know, a region, there should be one, one thing to stop with is to, to stop this visa 
and working permit story amongst all of you guys. And I say all of you, and I've been in the region for 20 years. I'm probably one of yours now, but it still kills me to to drop uh, a, an investment in Serbia because they need a, a work permit to Croatia, and it's very difficult to, to get. Um, so that that aspect I found really a pity. Um, I think, you know, um, our countries are small enough. I think we should be a little bit smarter and, and create those um, those high-tech visa or entrepreneur visa and, and simplify this whole paperwork, which in 2020, if you ask me, uh, has absolutely nothing to do with the current life we live in. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here, I'm talking to you as if you were my brother a meter away from me. And I mean, why, why a visa? I mean, tell me, what, what's the what was the rationale? I mean, I, it kills me. I don't get it. But that's probably why I'm trying to be a businessman, not a politician. Um, and that That's one point. Um, you, you raise a very interesting point on, on the scaling. Um, we never invest in companies which uh, whose only goal is to to scale a product in Croatia or in Serbia or, for that matter, in in Slovenia. Um, we hardly pay uh, any attention or a premium if they've done it already, like a scaling. We we have a couple of companies that are coming to us and say, "Well, I'm." super successful in Slovenia or I'm super successful in OSIEC or as a great um, means your product shows that it works. But for us, you have not demonstrated a product market fit. So this is not a, a big investment factor um, at all. Um, so the, the, the long answer to your question is, you know, what can be done better? Uh, I would be very concrete and I would start by, by letting people uh, move freely uh, at, at this time of their life. Uh, an entrepreneur needs money. Uh, if someone offers him money, um, you know he should be able to go and take it wherever uh, it is. Uh, and I think it will do well for everybody. It will do well for the country that welcomes him because he's going to create wealth. He's going to be good for the country that let him go because eventually he's going to come back because he's going to give back. So, I mean, this whole vision of, of ballers for me is so outdated that I don't even understand why they still exist. Thank you. I, I personally, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I hope your words resonate with somebody who, who has the power or, or ambition to change that. Uh, Julian, thank you so much for this, uh, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Rasko, thanks a lot. It was great to, uh, to have a chat with you.